Paul that all things work for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. As a matter of fact, all of the trial and hardship that is going on post the baptism and the revealing of Jesus Christ is serving to advance the agenda of the kingdom and God's ordained purpose. It's fulfilling a lot of things, but namely in Matthew chapter 4, it is expediting the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. For the kingdom of heaven will first be declared by the king of heaven himself, not to audiences of priests and kings, but instead the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the kingdom of heaven is first declared by the king of heaven himself, it's not to the aristocrats and to the well-lettered. Instead, it is in the midst of apostates and Gentiles. And specifically this morning, to fishermen. For those who will set upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, will begin while mending nets. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, it says that while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, if you know anything about fishermen... The last thing that you would expect for four fishermen to do is to drop their nets, drop their tackle, walk away from their boats. There's some of you boys that you couldn't get to lay down an old Zebco and a tackle box this big full of bait that you got at Otasco, much less professional fishermen that are making their livings and supplying for their families in this manner simply to drop everything they have that represents basically all of their means in this world and walk away. But these four men did. And they did, it says, because Christ called to them. He called to them. The effectual call of Jesus Christ. Guys, let me tell you. We love. We hold it as dear and precious because it is the means by which we were all saved. And it is joy to know and it is joy to understand. We love the high doctrines of the calling of God out of Romans and Ephesians. And as you will see later in life when John writes the gospel of John and expands on that idea and all that's going on through Jesus' ministry. But let me tell you, from the very beginning, here it is. And it's always here. Because this is how it always begins. This is how his people become his people. This is how the lost become found. This is how the condemned become saved. The effectual call of Jesus Christ. And what you will see here today with, with, with Peter and Andrew and James and John is the same thing that you will see with all of his disciples and yes, even all of his people down to you and I that call ourselves according to the message of Christ. The effectual call of Jesus Christ, Christ's command when he speaks to his people. First and foremost, it works. That's why it's called the effectual call is because the call of Jesus Christ to his people, not the general call that goes out to all, but the call to his people has effect in them. 
And his word returns back to him that for which he sent it. And so we can look to places like Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, where Paul lays out the process of salvation for us, starting in eternity past and moving all the way forward into eternity future, where he says that for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so when we read Matthew chapter 4, and we look here at the calling of the first disciples with Andrew and Peter and with, with James and John, then what we can say about them is that because the call is evident in their life and we see Jesus himself making it from the seashore, that it can be truly said that they were foreknown, that they were loved by God before they ever existed, that they were predestined by him, they have been called by him, and because of that, justification is coming for them, the sanctification that follows it, that molds them into the image of Christ and eventually eternal glorification can be said about them what Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter to him in chapter 1 and verse 9 when he said he saved us and he called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. We talked about the nature of the Greek verbiage when we were in Romans in chapter 9 and went to a lot of labor to, to, to be able to say firmly the, the, the doctrinal point that, by golly, if you are foreknown, you are predestined. If you're predestined, you're called. If you're called, you're justified. If you're justified, you're sanctified. If you're sanctified, you're glorified because God's word doesn't fail. Doesn't fail. And so here you have these men on the shore. And in their mind and in Zebedee, the father of James, in John's mind then the ball might still be in the air. But in the eternal mind of Christ, the love of His Father has fixed Him upon them. And when He speaks, it works. But the call of Jesus Christ is not only effectual, it is also particular. It is particular to these men. He's calling his people. Galilee may be remote in that it is not the hustle and bustle of the metropolis of Jerusalem. But it is by no mean empty. As a matter of fact, one of the largest garrison of Roman soldiers, as well as all of the economy that goes around with that, was found at the very end of the sea, not very far from where the Sermon on the Mount would be delivered. Capernaum, where Jesus would spend so much of his time. Well, there were crowds, all right. And he was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But something was different for these four men. As a matter of fact, when praying about these very men three years in the future, at the very end of his ministry, here we are at the very beginning. But when praying for these men three years later, at the very end of his ministry, in John chapter 17, he prays for them like this. He said, I have manifested your name. He's praying to the Father. And he says, Father, I've manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. You want to know why Jesus picks these four guys out at this day by the Sea of Galilee? It's because they belonged to his father, and his father had given them to him. And he says, okay. Yours they were. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. And they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me for they are yours. The high priestly prayer is the longest recorded prayer of Christ anywhere in Scripture. It's the the prayer that he makes 
before his arrest, the last time he's going to be praying with his apostles, he's praying for them. He says, Lord, I manifested your name to them because they were yours and you gave them to me. And they're precious to me. They're precious to me right now on this evening before my death. They were precious to me when they were fishermen on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And they will be precious to me when they sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so on this faithful day by the sea, he calls to them. I think our conclusion this morning would run parallel with what Matthew Henry had to say on the topic when he said, in all his preaching, he gave a common call to all the country. But in this, he gave a special and particular call to those that were given him by the Father. Oh, let us desire and see and admire the power of Christ's grace. Own his word to be the rod of his strength. And wait upon him for those powerful influences which are necessary to the efficacy of the gospel call. Those distinguishing influences. All the country was called. But these were called out. And what did he call to them? These were called out. Christ comes because of the will of the Father, what belonged to the Father and what the Father desired to give to Him. And He comes and He finds them. And He calls to them. And that call is going to be effectual. It is going to cause them to believe and to know that everything that Christ said came from the Father Himself. It's going to work. And He calls to Him. And what does He call? Follow me. Follow me. Seems straightforward enough. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And we typically have a, when, when this, this particular section of Scripture is preached, we typically zoom right in on fishers of men and well, we should and we will. But not to the detriment of all that Christ has to say. We want to consider the whole counsel of the Word of God. He says to them first, before he talks about being fishers of men, he says first this simple command, follow me. And the implication that in doing that, then I will do something and make you fishers of men. But before we get to what Christ is going to do, let's first look at the command. Let's look at the call. Christ comes to them and says, follow me. One of the things that perks the interest here is that there is something I think that is critical missing from the English translation. I don't know why we do it because it's there in the Greek. And I, and I don't mean something nuanced. I mean, there's an entire word in the Greek that is just not in the English. There's a handful of translations that you can find that include it, but not the big ones. N not the King James Version, not, not, not the ESV, um, not, not the New King James not the, not the revised standard. The big ones just leave it out altogether. And it's an incredibly important word. And it's an important word because it's the word that Jesus uses to get their attention before he says everything else that he says. The Greek word is diute, which isn't important and you don't need to remember it. It means this. It means here or hither. But it, it doesn't just mean here as a statement of place. It's an imperative, which means it's a command. This is not a request that Christ is making. It's a command that he is giving. And because the command is here, then the implication is you should come here. Here. Here, follow me. But not only is it a is it a command, it is also an interjection. 
It's one of those words that, that, that would have an exclamation point behind it in the English. It's an exclamatory word that you would use to interrupt events that were already occurring. Maybe even to interrupt someone that was speaking or, or, or something that was going on. It's something that you can inject into a situation and it needs no grammatical context. It's able to stand completely on its own. And so it's something along the lines of hear or come in all capital letters with an exclamation point behind it and no other grammatical context whatsoever. Come. Here. Here's these guys. They're in their boats. They're doing the things that they do every day. They're fishing and they're mending nets. Because if you're fishing for a living, I would guarantee you that the maintenance never stops. And so this is what they're doing. They're fishing and they're mending nets. They're probably talking with each other as they're doing so. And here is Christ walking down the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes, here, come. This is the manner in which one might call to those who are in their service. This is the way I call one of my pups. Here. This is what you may say to a child. Or what a king may say to a servant. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that what Jesus is saying is demeaning or derogatory to them. As a matter of fact, I would argue the opposite. I would say that the most joyful thing that these men ever heard was Christ telling them to come. What I am saying, though, is this. This is not the manner that one speaks to an equal. I'm not going to tell Jim, come. <laughs> this is not the manner in one in which one speaks to an equal. And that's okay because he's not their equal. He's their king. And he's about to be their savior. And come is a joyful thing when the king commands it and interrupts what you're doing to tell you to do it now. Here, hither, come Notice the effectualness of the call of Christ. It's never here in the English. It is there both times in the Greek. It's there when he speaks to the first time to, to, to Simon and to Andrew. It's there the second time when he's speaking to James and to John. And both times the response is exactly the same. It says they came immediately. That's a good translation in English. The Greek literally means straight. He said, come, and they went in a straight line. They abandoned what they were doing. Some people might argue that was bad stewardship. I would tell you that in most circumstances it would be. That if the Lord has seen fit to give you a boat and nets and a way to provide for your family, and uh, you're trying to help your old dad out over here, because let's face it, guys, by the time a Galilean fisherman had sons old enough to be fishing and doing what these men were going to be doing, they were probably getting in kind of banged up shape. You shouldn't just typically walk away from that unless it's Jesus Christ himself that says do it. And they just dropped it. Immediately they went straight to him for such is the manner in which Christ called them. As a matter of fact, it was the manner in which he called all of his disciples. Now, when you look at the list of Christ's disciples, not all were fishermen. And not all were even Galilean. But they were all called. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, it speaks about the entirety of the company in this manner. It says, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. Now, I, I would just point out at this point that both what you see here in Mark as well as what we just read in Matthew chapter 4 is, is the polar opposite of what the culture would normally expect from disciples that were sitting underneath a teacher or a rabbi. What the culture would expect for disciples that were sitting underneath a teacher, a rabbi, would be for the disciples to petition the rabbi. And if the rabbi saw fit to give them admittance to be one of his disciples, then they would come under his tutelage. With Jesus, it's exactly the opposite. 
which G, with Jesus, it is the teacher, it is the rabbi, it is the king that is petitioning the disciple. As you can imagine, the most well-versed and the most powerful rabbis of the day had a lot of men petitioning them to be disciples that were denied. What you see with Christ is the king himself going out and petitioning his own. And so he took not the ones that came to him and desired him. Instead, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. In the Gospel of John, Jesus would later say, You didn't choose me, I chose you. Man, all Peter wanted to do was get the fish in the boat, and John wanted to get the nets mended. Christ had something different in mind. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, or Petros, or Rock, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now, man, if you got to, let's just, if we can, just for a second. I mean, if Jesus is going to give you a nickname, how do you do better than that? Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All weren't Galileans, all weren't fishermen, but all were called. They were all called because he desired them. They were all called according to his purpose. Some he called stone and thunder. And yet, while all were called, all were not called in the same manner. That is to say that the manner that that calling took, the way it looked, wasn't the same for all of them. And while often we... Read, you know, Matthew chapter 4 kind of in isolation of the book of Matthew alone. And here's this, this statement about Jesus. And one day, seems like just any old day, he's walking down uh, the seashore by the Sea of Galilee. And here's these four guys fishing. And two of them have their brothers with their dad with them. And he goes, hey, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they get up and follow him. And he's got his first four disciples, those he will later call Apostles, But if you are a careful student of the other Gospels, you know that there is more to what is going on with the means and the manner of their call than what you see in Matthew alone. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, prequels are all the rage these days, right? If you have a hot movie or a hot TV show, then... What do you do later? You have a prequel that tells you how you got there. In John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42, we find out that for Peter and for Andrew, for sure, and probably for John, this is not their first encounter with Christ. This is not their first encounter with Jesus. They would have known exactly who he was, even who he was foretold to be. In John chapter 1, in verse 35, it says, The next day... This is immediately after John the Baptist, just to give you some context, this is immediately after John the Baptist has said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Pretty bold statement. So rewind here. John's not in prison. John's not about to lose his head. Jesus hasn't been through the temptation yet, and Jesus has not been ran out of Nazareth yet. And here's John, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then in verse 35, the next day, the next day, again, John was standing with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. 
And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Insert joke here about one day Peter being as stable as a rock, but is currently dumb as a rock. This happens before the events of Matthew 4 beside the Sea of Galilee. Not only did they just, it's not like they just stumbled into Jesus before. Andrew is one of John the Baptist's disciples. He hears John the Baptist say two days in a row that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would have been fully versed in everything that John said about his own ministry, that his whole purpose was to come as the friend of the bridegroom, and once the bridegroom had arrived, he was to diminish. His whole point was to reveal to Israel their Messiah, and here he is doing it. Now, if you're Andrew and you've been under John's tutelage for an extended period of time, this is his whole point in his ministry, and he says, there it is. Andrew goes, okay, him and another disciple, a lot of people have assumed it might be John, but we don't know that for sure out of the scripture. What we do know for a fact is Andrew was there, him and some other disciple, maybe John, maybe not, they follow him, run him down, and spend the day with him. And when it's over, Andrew goes back and he finds Peter, and this is a founding. It's him found him we know he's the Christ they already knew Jesus was the Messiah and then they went fishing they went fishing now tell me if the Messiah had not yet come and everything that you had invested your life in to follow everything that you believed and confessed in said the Messiah is now here and that is evidenced at his baptism with heaven opening and the Father speaking from heaven and the Spirit descending like a dove would you go fishing the next day or two or weeks or months at this point in time. I mean, by the time we get to Matthew 4, we're after Passover. Jesus has been in Nazareth for a while. He got pushed out of there. He's been in Samaria for a while. Now he's back at the Sea of Galilee. It's been a while, and they're just fishing. I would propose to you that apart from the call of Jesus Christ, it's exactly what you and I would do. You know why? You look at this, you go, they knew he was the Christ. Why are they fishing? Why aren't they after him? And the answer is this, is because knowledge is not enough for men. Knowledge is not enough for men. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the word of God declares that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, look, he says, the reason that the wrath of God is revealed against all men and not just men who have heard about Christ specifically and denied it is because God has seen fit to show enough of his self and enough knowledge of him in the creation that is around us that men ought to look up and go, hmm, there is a creator God who should be sought. And in seeking him, they would find him. In knocking, the door would be opened because he is faithful to all these things. The problem is not with God. The problem is with men. Knowledge is not sufficient. And here you see it. Not just in Peter, who often gets a hard time, but in Andrew, who was the one that pointed out to Christ the boy with the loaves and the fishes. In John, who would later write, in the beginning was the Word. And James, who would be killed with the sword by Herod, one of the early martyrs of the church that would truly mark for the first time 
governmental persecution of the followers of Christ. These men, they knew who he was. But knowledge wasn't enough. But not only did they already know who Christ was, but the Gospel of Luke tells us that there was a lot more to the events of their calling than what is recorded in Matthew. Matthew keeps it short and sweet. Jesus was walking down the beach. This is true. Here are four guys, two sets, two brothers with their dad in one boat, two brothers without their dad in the other. They're fishing and they're mending nets. Jesus is walking down the sea. He says, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they came. That's all that's true. It is, it is very much the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> What went on that day beside the Sea of Galilee was spectacular. In Luke chapter 5, in verses 1 through 11, it says that on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we told all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now that should be interesting. O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also were James and John, sons of Debedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now there's the detailed version. Or at least fairly detailed. I mean, you don't get Peter scraping the fish scales from under his fingernails, but you get the point. So Jesus is walking down the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but we probably have this picture of it in our minds of him in the proverbial white robe, right? Kind of with a serene look on his face, kind of strolling along, taking in the day. The fact of the matter is, is the crowds are following him and pressing him so hard that he's backed up against the water's edge with nowhere to go. So when he comes on these two sets of brothers with their boats, he hops in one of the boats and says, push off from the shore a little bit so I can get some breathing room and speak to these people. No telling what he preaches to them that day. I'm guessing he probably has something to say that Simon has a hard time wrapping his mind around. Because Jesus decides to make a point. So let's put it out a little further. Throw your nets in. Peter? Peter knows who this guy is. At least he knows who he's supposed to be. He's heard about it. He's heard about it from his brother. He believes John to be a godly man. And, and John said, this is the Lamb of God that, that takes away the sin of the world. And Peter's not convinced. And we know he's not because he argues with Christ. If he's convinced that he is the Lord that calls the fish of the sea to swarm in Genesis chapter 1, then this isn't really a problem. But he says, Lord, we've, we've told all night. And look, we're good at what we do. He doesn't say we're good at what we do. But if you read Peter, you know Peter's got to think he's pretty good at what he does, and he probably is. We've told all night. Just do it. Humor me. Next thing you know, the nets are breaking. The boats are trying to capsize. Other fishermen are coming along as fishermen do to help, try to help out others that are in trouble and just try to get everything and all the kit back to shore before something bad happens. And in this context, he looks at him and says, from now on, you'll be catching men. Come. Follow me. Not only, and Peter knows it. 
Peter drops to his knees and all of a sudden, all this stuff that he heard from Andrew comes crashing home. Lord, depart from me. He doesn't, Matthew doesn't tell you that they knew he was the Christ. He doesn't tell you about the spectacular manner of their calling. He doesn't tell you that they knew about Christ because knowledge about Christ is not enough. And he doesn't tell you about the spectacular nature of their calling because spectacle is not enough. How many times have you thought, I know I have, how many times have you thought, if I could have just been there to see this event or that event or the other event, if I could have just been there to see the Red Sea crossing, if I could have just been there to see the Lord descend on Sinai and fire, if I could have just been there to see Jesus heal Lazarus, how much stronger would my faith be? The answer is not one drop. Because Scripture teaches us, not my opinion, Scripture teaches us that spectacle is not enough. Spectacle's not enough. Friends, if you want to go back to Romans and what he said about God has made himself plain to them in his existence through the things that were created, if you look up at the sky, if you look through a telescope and see a nebula burning with the fires of a million suns and a black hole holding this very galaxy in which we spin together, if that's not enough spectacle for you, then too many fish in the nets isn't going to be either. If the sun rising is not enough spectacle for you, then a boat that's about to sink and a net that's about to rip isn't going to be enough spectacle either. In Matthew chapter 12, as a matter of fact, every time Jesus shows them spectacle to the crowds, you know what happens? The persecution gets worse. It doesn't get better. In Matthew chapter 12, a demon-possessed man, this is verse 22, who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Man, there's some spectacle. You get a dude over here full of demons... They've made him blind. They've made him mute. No telling what else they're doing. And Jesus heals him. And all of a sudden, he can speak. He can see. You understand, even if you fix in someone's body whatever particularly is wrong that doesn't allow them to speak, if you don't learn to speak by the time you're about this tall, you're not learning. Like the miracle that he did here was massive brain wiring kind of stuff. And they said, oh, it's just he's, he's just full of demons. Spectacle's not enough. Friends, for those of you, and believe me, I do, for those of you that really desire to, to see the grand displays of the glory of God that you, you read about in Scripture, it's not because you think they would make your faith stronger. It's because your faith is already strong. And you desire to see on display the glory in which you put your faith. See, those are two very different things. And so here's all this information, and Matthew doesn't include any of it. And you have to ask yourself, why not? Because Matthew is like a massive gospel, right? Like, as a matter of fact, Matthew tends to be one of the places you go to get the extra that's not in the other's. And so here at the very beginning, at the call of these first four, he leaves out their knowing and he leaves out the spectacle and you have to ask yourself why. And if you would permit me this morning, I think, I think I understand. These men are called to great things they're called to incredible things they're called to eternal things they're called to the kind of things that will call the son of God to name you stone and thunder they together will see incredible things Peter, James and John will be the closest of the apostles to him 
They alone will witness the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. They alone will be present in the room when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And they alone will be brought apart from the rest of the apostles to pray with Christ as he sweats blood in Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. Andrew according to Mark chapter 13, will be the one that has the courage when Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple to say, Lord, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They will see great things and they will do great things. For Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, oh, this is just the call at this point, but the call is effectual. They're going to be fishers of men. And the spectacle of the broken nets is just an analogy for what they're going to bring in. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 16, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And they've not prevailed yet. Here we are today. They are the men who will literally, by the testimony of the enemies of the kingdom, turn the world upside down. Well then, Matthew, why don't you tell the spectacle of their story? Why don't you tell about the knowledge they had of Christ beforehand? Because none of that glorious stuff that Christ is calling them to will happen on that day. It won't happen when Peter gets out of the boat. It's not going to happen today, Peter. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week. It's not even going to happen in the next three years. As a matter of fact, the next three years will be marked by hardship and trial. They will be falsely accused. They will be chased by lynch mobs on multiple occasions. They will suffer the plotting of the authorities and the powers that be, both on the Jewish side of the equation as well as the Gentile side. There will be false accusations of demonism. They will be in the constant threat of death, both from men, demons, and nature. And they will eventually witness the death of their Lord. But more grievous to them personally will not be the hardships that they experience from outside. But of greater difficulty will be the knowledge that they have that when the chips were down and Christ was being arrested, they scattered everyone to the last man. That the rock himself spit on the ground and cursed and denied that he even knew him and they will have to endure the statement of John the statement of Jesus in John chapter 14 that though they talk a good talk they actually don't love him that's tough to hear from your lord i think the reason that matthew leaves out the knowledge and the spectacle is because in light of what's coming the knowledge and the spectacle is not on which these things hang. Whether or not they will be fishers of men, whether or not upon this rock will his church be built, whether or not they will turn the world upside down, has nothing to do with what they had in their head beforehand. It has nothing to do with the spectacle they witnessed on that day. It has everything to do with the call of Jesus Christ. This is the thing on which great glory hangs. It doesn't matter that it was a huge crowd and bursting nets. It wouldn't have mattered if it was just Jesus strolling down the beach on a sunny day and looked at him and said, come, follow me. And they said, see you, Dad, and left. If that had been all there was to the narrative, that would have been sufficient because the thing that matters is the voice of Jesus Christ going, come. Come. Now, the other stuff's great. 
I guarantee you they loved it. They they love to tell the story. We know they do. Scripture records that they were saved according to their testimony. They love to tell the story of the manner in which the call of Christ came to them. And we love to hear it. The reason they love to tell it is because it was the glory of God displayed in which their faith is found. The reason we love to hear it is because it is the glory of God displayed in which our faith is found. But what is critical... That which redemptive history will hang from will never be knowledge and it will never be spectacle. It will always be the word of eternal God. One that says, come and follow me. And I would tell you, but you wouldn't even believe it if I did. Matthew focuses on that on which it all turns. The call. A call that begins on this day, but will not come to fruition for three years. I see when we when we read what, for instance, Paul has to say that we read earlier out of Romans 8 about the doctrine of salvation. And how it begins in the heart of God and moves to the mind of God and then to the activity of God and the call and then the justification through the blood of Jesus Christ and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that brings around sanctification and the conforming to Jesus Christ and then the fullness of His glory at the end of days at glorification. When we look at that, we have, and I don't think it's just the soundbite generation, I think it's the nature of men. We have a tendency to want all of these to basically be immediate, except for perhaps the season in which sanctification occurs. And so we understand that in the infinite mind, in the infinite heart of God, that when God goes, you can't even say the moment that he did it because he's, he's apart from time and eternal. The fact that God is intimate with his people, the fact that he knows them intimately beforehand is going to lead to an instant response of predestination in the mind of God. And we're okay with a gap between that and, and our birth and, and the moment that God sees fit to call but we would really prefer that the call immediately translate into justification. And man, there's people that it does. And you, you can look at the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot with Philip. You can look at Paul, Saul of Tarsus walking down the road to Damascus. And man, buddy, there is call and justification. Bang, bang. And man, that's neat and handy. And it's nice. It's nice to see. Who doesn't want to see? When, when, when the weight of the call of Christ comes upon one of your kids, who doesn't want to see that kid justified right now? Right now. Praise the Lord, sometimes it's that way. Sometimes it's not. Oh man, the call is particular to His people and it is effectual unto justification those who are called are justified but it doesn't always mean that it happens in the next 15 minutes in this case it won't happen for three years three very difficult years until finally after his resurrection and things being as bad as they could possibly be he walks into the upper room where they're at in John chapter 21 and breathes on them and says receive the Holy Spirit and in that day the call comes to its effect there are going to be hard days for Peter and for Andrew for James and for John the hardest days they've ever known. With the exception of John, all of these men will be martyred. They will all die a very violent death for their faith. And I promise you, Scripture will, Peter himself will tell us in 2 Peter that when that day comes, it won't be the hardest day I've lived. I've already lived the hardest day I'm ever going to live. And it's coming. And so Matthew speaks of that which matters. 
Not that the other things aren't important, not that they're not glorious, not that they're not awesome. That's why we read them today and didn't just miss them, dismiss them and move on is because they are important and they are glorious and they are awesome. But if you strip this thing down to the one thing that matters and you want the prophetic part of this for you, you want the John Wisenhunt application, here it is. Because Christians, at some point, following after Christ will put you in a position where spectacle and knowledge will not be sufficient for you. Maybe you've already been there. Maybe you haven't. But he's going to bring you there. Let me tell you what is sufficient. What is sufficient in that day is this. I heard Christ tell me to come. I heard him tell me to come. He spoke to me and said, come and follow me. When the spectacle fades, when the knowledge is more Fact and less gnosko. In that day, the universe will turn on that reality. He called me. That truth is invincible. Friend, you, you want to know what the invitation is? The invitation is this, man, is Christ calling you? Man, if, if you've been exposed all your life to a whole system by which you're born again, a system that's often apart from Scripture, man, let me just start simple. Is Christ calling you? If He is, then I would suggest that you take one out of some fisherman's playbook and go immediately to him. Just go immediately, right now. Don't let me get the words out of my mouth. Go immediately to him. What's coming may well be tough. What lied before may well have been tough. This call is sufficient. We'll pick up there next week. Because he calls them. He calls them to follow. He calls them literally to come after him. And they do.